2 Corinthians 2.14. Now thanks be unto God. That's my title for the message this morning as we continue to look at this letter. And Paul closes out this chapter, the transitional word in verse 14. Many call this, beginning at this verse, the great digression. Paul, as he closes out in verses 12 and 13 with a last explanation of his change of plans and why he did it, he now digresses for four chapters to talk about his ministry. He will pick up in chapter 7, verse 5, about why he left Troas to find Titus four chapters later. So these four chapters are a digression of Paul, not without purpose, not without meaning, but you'll see he'll connect the dots about Titus in verse 13 and Titus in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when he begins to talk about why he went to Macedonia to find Titus. So first of all, in verses 12 and 13, we see him giving further explanation about his love for the church at Corinth before he begins to talk about his thanks to God. Verse 12, he says, Furthermore, when I came into Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now thanks be unto God. So Paul is doing what I call a counteroffensive here. That's the transition in verse 14. A counteroffensive is a military term. When a military is attacked, they respond with an attack on the enemy that's usually prolonged and lasts for a period of time. So the enemy that Paul is doing a counteroffensive on is the enemy of unrest. Verse 13, I had no rest in my spirit. The reason he had no rest, he tells us, because he found not Titus his brother. Which means likely when Paul sent Titus to deliver the letter to the Corinthians, the severe letter, the letter that would be filled with rebukes, he had planned to meet Titus in Troas, and Titus didn't show up. Now, some believe Titus also had the love offering from Athens and Greece and the churches that he had gathered it from, particularly Corinth. And so he was susceptible to danger from thieves. So he didn't make his appointment at Troas. So what does Paul do? He leaves the brothers at Troas and moves on to Macedonia, likely because that was plan B. In that day, it took a long time to travel and a lot of things could happen that took a long time to overcome. Not like driving in a car where you may need to get a flat tire fixed or something minor. So finally, Paul, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, when he connects the dots again and gets back on subject, he finds Titus and then tells us the result of what it meant when Titus came with the news of how the church responded to that letter. That's the reason he had no rest. His experience of no rest, which the word means... No relaxation, no ease, no freedom. What was Paul not experiencing freedom from? Verse 4, the affliction and anguish of heart for which he wrote the letter and the tears that he was shedding. That's the perfect tense, which means at some point in time, the anguish started when he penned the letter and it continued until he met Titus in chapter 7. He continued with no rest in anguish and affliction of mind and heart and soul. When he does find Titus in the fifth verse of chapter 7, he would repeat the phrase of no rest with a different, a little twist. He would say, for when we came into Macedonia, means he left Troas, came into Macedonia, he's looking for Titus, we had no rest of the flesh. Now Paul is just using those interchangeably. No rest in the spirit, no rest in the flesh. His whole person was burdened and afflicted from his mind to his heart. We had no flesh, but were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. So from the time he penned the letter to chapter 7, verse 5, whatever that time period is, he went to Troas, he went on to Macedonia, 
He had fears within. He was anxious. He was deeply concerned about the church's response. And then in verse 6 of chapter 7, Nevertheless, the God who comforts those that are cast down comforted us with the coming of Titus. Paul is cast down. What's Paul's experience of no rest? Anguish, affliction, fears, anxiety, and discouragement. He's downcast. Paul wants the church to know in verses 12 and 13, he didn't change his plans because he was double-minded, he was fickle, it was really about his own interest. He would say yes and change his plans, then he would say no, then he would say yes. It was because of his abundant love, he left a door open of the Lord to go find out about the church at Corinth. Now that's a big deal for an apostle. And a minister. A door open means the opportunity to preach the word, but God was opening the hearts of men to receive the gospel. And the perfect tense there indicates when the door opened, it was still open when he left. He left an open door. Why? Because he had no rest. Just to find Titus. So they're going to accuse Paul of being fickle and double-minded and not really caring when Paul demonstrates by his actions and his unrest, the great love wherewith he loved the church at Corinth. We live in a time period where people are quick to break relationships, long-standing relationships that have been developed over years, and then tension and unrest hits. It just dissolves. No effort. Paul would not allow, on his part, the relationship that he established with the church at Corinth by the preaching of the word because he loved them just to dissolve. He was willing to leave the open door to do whatever he could by the grace of God to keep the relationship intact, which meant the church needed to respond to the authority of God in a certain way. And when Titus came, he was comforted of God, who's the God of all comfort. Why? They responded for the most part, most of them, in a way of repentance. So, Paul is being attacked by the enemy of unrest. What's his counteroffensive? Now, thanks be to God. Paul is going to attack the enemy of unrest with thanksgiving to God. Now is the transitional word where he launches into four chapters called the Great Digression about his ministry, but now also means a transitional word that says, right now, in my unrest, in my discouragement, in my being cast down, in my anguish and affliction of soul, I'm going to give thanks to God. Have you known the discouragement and the high cost of caring for people in relationships? Isn't that what Paul is saying? It's going to cost you dearly to care for people in church relationships unless you just bolt on the relationship. It's going to cost you something. It cost Paul dearly, but he was willing to pay the price for the great love he had for Christ and the abundant love that he's showing the church. He's being falsely accused by false apostles, and some of them are believing them, and he pours out his soul, he pours out his heart, and he's telling them the great cost he's willing to pay to care for the people that he loves. So now Paul gives us three ways in which he gives thanks to counter offensive against unrest because it remained not just in this window. We know Paul was dealing with affliction and tribulation and stresses of all kinds. He would say in chapter 11, and not only that, the care of all the churches which are upon me. He didn't that mean that as if he, it was some job, it was a, a care and a genuine concern for all the churches. So Paul tells us three ways we give thanks to God. And he's going to put himself in a position, in a metaphor, to show us these three ways with the backdrop of a Roman triumph. Verse 14, Now thanks be unto God, here's number one, which always is causing or leading us to triumph in Christ. Triambuo is the word here, which means to celebrate a triumph. 
Now, the backdrop of the Roman Empire was likely, in Paul's mind, the celebration of a Roman triumph. So we need to know something a little bit about that to apply what Paul is saying in his own role in a triumph and how he's thanking God. A triumph is when the Roman government voted to give a victorious general a a massive procession down the streets of Rome, ending at the capital, in which a great victory was celebrated because it was accomplished. Now, there were qualifications for the triumph, and they didn't happen all the time. You know, our modern-day parades didn't just start recently. It goes way back to such an event. So the general had to have slain over 5,000 soldiers to be qualified for a triumph. It could not have been a civil war. They had to take territory of enemies. It had to be completely finished. No occupation. No long-term occupation. And he had to bring the troops back, having gained territory from the enemy of Rome. If the general qualified, on rare occasions, there was a Roman triumph down the streets of Rome in great celebration. Now you can read of the sequence of the people that made up such a triumph. First you had the state officials and the senate. Of course the politicians come first. Then you had the trumpeters which would sound the trumpet to announce the procession was on its way. Then the spoils taken in victory. You remember Titus when he ransacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. You've seen images of the seven-branched candlestick. He took the spoils and they paraded them down the streets of Rome in a Roman triumph. Next, often they would make paintings or even models. Paintings of the land they conquered, models of ships that they destroyed, and they would parade them and hold them up as they marched the streets of Rome. Then there was a white bull that would come next that would be offered to the gods, thanking the gods of Rome for their victory. Next came the captives that were taken in the conquest. They were in chains. Some of them would become Roman slaves. The rest would be executed. After that, there were lictors, which were men that were considered bodyguards of magistrates. They had these wood sticks and they would beat the backs of the captives as they walked in this procession. Then there came the musicians followed by the priest which carried censers of incense. And the incense was said to permeate the crowd. It was so thick at times that it often obscured the pathway of those in the procession. Then the general himself came with a huge entourage riding in in some kind of horse-drawn chariot or or impressive cart. He would be fully decked and decorated. His family would follow. And then came the army in full decoration, shouting the words, Triumph! 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 All the people lined the city streets as they made their way, celebrating, cheering, shouting, Triumph! Triumph! Paul, first of all, thanks God because he sees himself not in a Roman triumph, but in the triumph of Christ. Thanks be unto God who's always causing us to triumph in Christ. Paul sees himself as one of the servants, one of the slaves, not the ones to be executed, the ones in chains because Christ had unshackled the Paul's chains of darkness that were in his soul in which he was in bondage. When he was incarcerated in the darkness of night in his own soul, and he traded him in by the grace of God as a willing, chained captive of love. Paul had seen the glory of Christ, for Christ had rescued him. Christ had brought him into his triumph, his glorious victory at Calvary. And now Paul saw himself in his unrest, now in his unrest, he countered that with his victory in Christ with the fact that Christ, in the larger program of God, we need to always see ourselves as God is leading and causing us to triumph. No matter what unrest you're experiencing, no matter what discouragement you're facing, and the reality is, beloved, we face discouragement. Do we not? We face being cast down. We struggle with affliction of mind and soul. That is sinful world we live in, and even in relationships that we love and seek to maintain. 
Paul would see himself in this role. And you know, in Romans chapter 8, he uses a different word and says we're more than conquerors. We are hooper, more than nakao, victory or conquerors. So listen how Paul uses a different word that speaks of, in the backdrop, in the background, a Roman triumph for which now he's part of the victory procession of Christ. And in his unrest, in his distress, something Christ is doing that's going to help Paul give thanks in his unrest. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No. In all these things we're more than conquerors. Through him that loved us. Now, I call these seven ministry killers, seven joy killers, seven relationship killers, seven confidence killers, seven courage killers, seven Christian killers tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Paul is going to quote Psalm 44 to tell us three things to keep us alive by faith, when we're being killed in the seven ministry killers. In other words, they're not to kill our faith, but as the idiom goes, when we say, you're killing me, that may mean multiple things, but here it means, when I use that idiom, life is so difficult. This is really hard. You are killing me. Three things about Psalm 44 leading up to more than conquerors. One, if you read Psalm 44, God is doing the killing. And you can't miss that in Psalm 44. Paul wants us to know that in this victory procession where there is unrest, although there's victory in Christ, God is doing the killing. Psalm 44. They are, they are rehearsing the glories of God's victorious rescue for Israel. And then they turn and say, but God, you are accounting us as meat for the slaughter. You're giving us over to the enemy. And clearly they keep saying, it's it's you that's doing this, God. In His providence. God, according to Psalm 44, is the one bringing us in to the seven ministry killers. The seven relationship killers. And unless we understand that, they will kill ministry. They'll kill churches. And they'll kill your relationships. The unrest will be so thick, so hard, so difficult, they'll kill you. You won't endure it. The second thing Psalm 44 tells us is that God is not only doing the killing, He is doing the killing for no wrong they've committed. That's important, isn't it? If you look back at Psalm 44, they say, We have not turned back from your covenant. We've not forgotten your name. If we have done so, Would we not have acknowledged it? So in that period of Israel's history, they were actually serving God and there was no known national offense, these were sinners, in which the nation had departed from the covenant of God in in that short window because most often in the Old Testament they had. So God is doing the killing. God is not killing them. And we're using that as figuratively with the seven killers, not literally. He's not doing it because of a known departure from the covenant that Israel has done. And then thirdly, according to Paul, what he says in Romans 8, God is killing them for His own namesake. For thy sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are being accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now notice that Paul says it's not after these things that were more than conquerors. It's not when the unrest is over for Paul in chapter 7, verse 5, when Titus shows up and now he's comforted and that relieves him. Now he finds some rest. It's not then that he's more than a conqueror. It's in all these things. Beloved, what are you in right now that's causing you unrest? What are you experiencing right now that's causing you anguish of mind or soul? or even body. God in His sovereignty is doing it in the sense that He has a purpose for that being in your life. 
He's not doing it because you've done something wrong. Unless, of course, he is chastening you because there is a known sin that you're not repenting of. But in our text, Romans 8, that's not the case. And he's doing it for the sake of his glory, which means he's using the occasions not to kill you, but to serve his purpose. When Paul can see that, whether it's the unrest or the anguish and the affliction, he keeps pressing in in ministry because he understands God is not against him, God is for him. That's what Romans 8 tells us. And he understands when he says it's for God's sake, it's then for our sake. Beloved, whatever God does for his own sake is for our sake. If he abandons his namesake and does it simply for our sake alone, then then it's not for us. So how does God work in Romans 8 for His sake, for our good? And of course, I, I gave you the cue. Because all things work together for good to them that love God. To them are the called according to His purpose. A lady told me recently, I wish I would thought of this, but I never did. She said, you know, we don't have to be told the things that work for our good. We, we just kind of know that. We know that salvation is working for our good. We don't have to tell each other that. We do have to tell each other when the things that are not good are serving God's greater purpose of His glory in your salvation. Right? And what is that central purpose we find in Romans 8? It is to be like the Savior. God is going to do what it takes through the tribulation, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the sword, the peril, and all the things that touch our lives He's going to use that to serve the greater purpose of His namesake. That's what Psalm 44 says. For your sake, we're being killed. For your sake, we're experiencing these seven things. And probably Paul doesn't mean to just cap it at that, but these are seven broad words that that captures your distress this morning, doesn't it? Whatever your distress, one of those words will capture it. To know that God is aiming at your good by bringing you closer to Him through being like the Savior, Jesus Christ. So rather than all these things separating us from the love of God, the love of Christ, that's how he begins the questioning. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall these seven things? No. In them, we're not just conquerors, and that's what a Roman triumph was. They didn't just go slaughter people, they brought them back. And they made all the slaves serve the Roman purpose, either as captives to be slaves or as slaughter. God, in your distress and unrest, His aim is to cause it to serve His greater purpose so that you're not just a conqueror through Christ as you're part of His victorious procession under King Jesus, that because of His victory now, all these things are transformed into an occasion for God's glory and your good as you trust Him. Isn't that the key? And, as the word implies, you are being led by God in the triumph. To cause a triumph means that God is leading you. Christ is the victor. Christ is the general. Christ is the conquering king. And we follow His lead. We can give thanks in our unrest, in our trials and tribulation. So the question, beloved, are you following King Jesus? Have you taken up your cross to follow Jesus? And be as the old children's song goes, you're in the Lord's army and you're shouting, triumph, triumph, victory. Because your sins have been forgiven and now God is is using the things that touch your life to bring about more good, the good of conformity to Christ. So Paul sees himself first as a captive. Christ has saved him. Christ has brought him into servitude willingly with chains of love, unshackled from the chains of darkness and sin, which we were all shackled with. And now Paul sees him as the priest holding the censers that's diffusing the incense. Look at what he says next in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
Now, thanks be unto God, which always is causing us to triumph in Christ, number one. Now, number two. And is making manifest the savour of His knowledge by us in every place. In Paul's unrest, he gives thanks because now God, through us, in every place, is exposing, making manifest, is appearing as what? An aroma, a savour of His knowledge. Savour is fragrance, aroma, or incense. The incense carried in the censers was permeating and diffusing the streets of Rome. You couldn't escape it. It made its way throughout the area as the people smelled this aroma. So we are the instruments. We're like the priest or even the servants that were carrying the incense. We are to be making known, exposing to view the savour of His knowledge, like the aroma of the incense permeated the crowd, and it's to be in every place. Now, let's start with every place. First, we would say that's geographically. In every place you find yourself, you're an ambassador of Christ, at work, in school, your leisure time, your vacation time, wherever you are as an ambassador of Christ, we are to make manifest the savour of His knowledge. Now, Paul is talking about himself and the ministry there, but we're, we're applying that to us because I think the application is for us as well. It's, it's geographical, but it's also situational. In every place means in your unrest, right? Paul had no rest in spirit, but now he's thanking God And the thanksgiving to God, the celebration of God's triumph in Christ, and the celebration of His role, not just as a captive in the possession, but as the priest or the servant who is holding the censer that diffuses the aroma of His knowledge is in every situation. Unrest, distress. Paul, his counteroffensive against unrest so that it doesn't bury him, is he gives thanks. As the Bible tells us often, in everything give thanks, for all things give thanks in Christ Jesus, for this is the will of God concerning you. God would have us give thanks. And part of spreading the aroma of His knowledge is through giving thanks. We are displaying something about the grace of God and its sufficiency that's sustaining us in a time of distress, that even through the tears and the anguish of heart, we are enabled by grace to thank God, whatever the condition. In everything, for all things, means in every situation, in every place, when God enables us to give thanks, we, in a small way, are giving off the savor, the fragrance, the aroma of His knowledge. And what is that knowledge? The sufficiency the sustaining grace of God, the help of God, the strength of God, the power of God, the love of God is being diffused. Peter will make this clear in a a context of pain and affliction, and he will call us priests. So I'm not, not just pulling this out of the air, am I? We are the holy priesthood. Every believer is priest to God. So here's the language of Peter. First he says, you're a chosen generation, you're a holy priesthood, you're a peculiar people to do what? To show forth the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So you're in the procession as a captive of Christ, you've seen His glory, you're being transformed by that glory, as Paul says, from one degree to another, third chapter, chapter 18, And now in that position, you are now holding the censer as the priesthood of Christ and the aroma you want to display or diffuse is the excellency of Christ Jesus the Lord. The captain. You want to talk about the captain, the victorious general, and you want his worth to be put on display. Be sure that the, the, the center of attention was the general. All eyes were on him. So we do that with the gospel itself, don't we? 
We do that with the word of truth. That's one way we display his value and worth is, is that we talk about the great general. But we do it with, with our actions too. We talk about thanksgiving. We share the gospel. We want to talk about the grace of God with others. But also Peter says what in 1 Peter 2 in about the 6th verse? He would say, you also as lively stones are being built up a spiritual house. A holy priesthood. See? So I'm not just trying to grab images out of the sky to just make for, you know, hopefully a decent sermon, right? You are the priesthood. You're holding the censer. How are you diffusing the aroma of the knowledge of Christ as a priest? You're able to offer up spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, by the general, by the victor. It's through His grace. It's through His help. What are these sacrifices? Sacrifices of love. Your love to one another, relationally, displays to others. Even if they don't believe it, there's an aroma coming from you of the knowledge of God in Christ that is recognized. The reason we're able to offer up these sacrifices is because Peter says, to whom coming? as into a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen of God and precious. Now be a stone in the building. How are you going to do that? Because the general is precious. His blood for you. His love for you. His life for you. He's precious. So the power of his supremacy enables the priest, as they walk in procession behind the general, to diffuse the aroma of His knowledge in every place by grace, by giving thanks, we speak and we love. That's a hard thing to do in unrest, isn't it? That's an impossible thing to do in unrest. Where does power come for Paul? He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Beloved, we are what we are. We will be what we will be. We can be what God calls us to be by the glorious grace of the conquering, victorious general who died to have you. So Paul gives thanks that he's in this procession by grace. He's now marching in triumph behind Christ. He recognizes the larger program of God and what he's doing through unrest and tribulation and the seven things of Romans 8. We're more than conquerors. And now he gives thanks because... As Paul, an apostle, in his unrest, in every place he can do what? Make manifest the savour, like the incense coming from the censer. And by grace, God calls us to do the same. And then thirdly, the third reason he gives thanks is in verse 15. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are being saved and in them that are perishing. And there's a bit of twist to the plot here, isn't there? We are unto God a sweet savour. Now Paul sees himself as the very incense coming out of the censer. We are the aroma. So he starts with, he's a servant captured by the grace of God and the love of God. He's in the possession. Now he's a priest because through what he's doing and saying... He wants the aroma of his knowledge to be known through Paul's life. Now Paul's the incense. We are the very aroma of God. Diffusing throughout the streets of Rome, as it were, and throughout our lives together and every place we find ourselves. What is Paul saying here with the words, a sweet savour of Christ? What does he mean? Savour again is... a Similar word, the phrase together is taken from the Old Testament. We see in Genesis chapter 8, the first time this phrase is used, when Noah offered a sacrifice to God, it was a sweet-smelling savour to God. So there, there is symbolism that God is communicating to us through that sacrifice. And the symbolism finds its way in fulfillment in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? 
Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Paul says, Be therefore, or walk in love as dear children. I'm going to read it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. So, similar phrase there. So, when Noah offered the sacrifice, God smelled it like a sweet savour. We understand that, right? You ever go in the kitchen and there's the smell of fresh-baked cookies wafting through the room. It's like incense diffusing in your nostrils. And you can see what the expression means on a person's face. It's pleasing. It's satisfying. It's good. So what God is communicating in the Old Testament and in Christ is that the smell of the sacrifice in some way was pleasing to God and now we are the sweet savour of God. When God smells something through us, we are the incense that wafts itself up to God. He smells it and symbolically He derives pleasure. How is that? Well, did you know you can please God? You can please God. That's something we have to be reminded of because we think of who we are by nature and sinners. and We have to be reminded, you, you can please God. He works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. That's His aim. So what does that mean, it's a sweet smell? How was the sacrifice a sweet smell to God? In two ways. One, the sacrifice represented... The sacrifice represented the emptiness and the need of the one bringing it. Particularly when it was offered by faith, right? By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. He brought the sacrifice to God as an expression of his soul's emptiness and his deep need of what? Forgiveness, help, strength, rescue, deliverance, reconciliation, redemption. So the animal was sacrificed symbolizing, I need this. What was it from God's perspective? The sacrifice. The sacrifice, symbolically, in the Old Testament, represented God's provision for the need. It represented God's sufficiency for the need. Now what happens when need meets glory and sufficiency? God's magnified. What happens when your needs are met by God's fullness? God is exalted and you're helped. In Christ, all of our needs have been met fully and finally. And God is your God. And we bring our need to Jesus, not our help for God, not what we can do for God, not how we can work for God, but how God can meet our needs spiritually and and gloriously He does that physically too, doesn't He? God is magnified by His provision in Christ. So when we by faith approach God like that firstly, we are a sweet savour to God in Christ because we're coming to God and we're asking God to help us, to rescue us, to deliver us to empower us, to forgive us. God is pleased when your need meets His sufficiency. Right? Because they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. See? You have no need, you don't need a doctor. Just go cure yourself. For I'm not come to call the righteous, the people that don't have any need, but the sinners to repentance. And through your repentance and emptiness and brokenness, Christ, the victorious conquering general, is magnified and God is magnified through him. So never feel guilt, beloved, because you're bringing your need to God. That's what God is after, to feel your need of him. Now, when we arise out of that symbolism that was pictured in the sacrifice, now, as this sweet aroma, we are then representing God's sufficiency in meeting our needs as we go out to others. Isn't that really what evangelism is about? 
You're telling people about the sufficiency of God in Christ to meet your deepest need, your sin debt, and His wrath being satisfied. However we say that to people, we are now, as this aroma, we are the aroma going out in a community to be the message and the messengers and to tell people how God has met every need and He's still meeting those needs. And God is saying, that gives me pleasure because it glorifies God. And now you're bringing God's help, not your help, God's help to the sinner if it's received by faith. You're bringing the help of the gospel to sinners. And when it's received by faith, what happens? They become the aroma of God that pleases Him because sufficiency meets deep needs, which means glory. But now look how it twists here. Now this is the third reason Paul is giving thanks when he says, because we are under God, we're the sweet savour of Christ in them that are being saved and in them that are perishing. The reason I read it that way is these are present tense participles. To the one we are the savour or the smell of death unto death. That phrase means death that's leading on to death. Eternal death that's leading finally to eternal death. And to the other, Paul would say, the savour of life, everlasting life, leading to what? Everlasting life. And who is sufficient for these things? Now, summarize what that means. Even when we are unsuccessful, we are successful in this triumph. If nobody believes the gospel that you share your entire life, you still were a success. You still were an aroma of a sweet smell to God. Because there's only two types of people. Those that hear the message of Christ as death. He's just a dead man. Dead joy, dead hope, dead future, dead interest, dead end, dead to me. That's leading to eternal death. There is a willful ignorance in men. It's willful, but it's ignorance. Willful ignorance doesn't just mean, well, they don't know something. It means they refuse to know something. They refuse to acknowledge the supremacy of Christ. So there's a willful ignorance that leads to eternal death. And you were willfully ignorant too, weren't you? And Christ rescued you and revealed the knowledge of Himself to you. So there's death leading to death, and then there's life. Christ is life. You're going to meet with these two types of people. It's life-giving. Christ is life. He's joy. He's supreme. He is interesting. He's precious. He's glorious. He's mine. Don't, don't let it be written on your tombstone. Here lies a man or a woman who refused Christ, who rejected His supremacy, who would not follow Him, who had no interest in Him, who did not want to obey Him, did not want to be part of His glorious, victorious triumph. You see, you're accountable for your rejection. Oh, may God open our eyes to be the servants who are part of the procession and who are carrying the incense as priests of God by grace, and who become the very aroma of God as we seek to represent Him to a fallen world. The very world that we were a part of. The very world we loved. And now Christ is a savour, an aroma of life leading to everlasting life. You see, beloved, God is glorified in His mercy and His judgment. That's what Paul is saying. And the message is having its impact. It is. Always. You're always leading, being led in a triumph. We see this in Numbers chapter 14. Where God says, As surely as I live, my glory shall cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. What glory? If you just go read that, you'll see His great mercy and His great judgment. He's going to be glorified in His judgment and in His wrath. And He says, As surely as I live, which means as certain as I exist, this will happen. Now, we, we want to be part of the, of the, the great mercy. We want, we want to see that expanding, and so it does. But 
at the end of the day, that text is fulfilled in His mercy and in His judgment because He'll be glorified there too. What is Paul battling? Unrest, discouragement in ministry, the high cost of relationships. Now he's digressing to talk about this ministry, but he's connecting it with his unrest. And how even in ministry, when there were times where nobody heard Paul, and there were those times, Paul, you're just a failure. No, you weren't. It was a savour of death unto death, and God is going to be magnified. You, Paul, are a sweet savour of God, even when the gospel's rejected. Now notice this last connection. Four. Because we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. What's Paul saying? Verse 17, because we are not as many, there were many hucksters. The word corrupt means a huckster, a peddler. Isaiah 122 speaks of a, a person that would mix water with wine. Devalue the commodity. Keep the same price. Deceptive gain. The false teachers are always after filthy lucre, the Bible calls it. Deceptive gain. Paul says, when you understand that God is going to be glorified with His mercy and in His judgment, you don't corrupt the Word of God. That is to oppose the very thing we would like to see. Isn't it? There are hucksters today that would say, look, if we want to win people, we can't talk about certain things. It's going to smell like death to people. Let it smell like death. As a church, we've got to do things in a certain way to get the people in or they won't be interested in what we have to say. So Paul says, because we are not like that, we let the gospel be death or life. Now what happens if we adjust the gospel, make all these adjustments, uh, adjustments, and pollute the church of God with our own wisdom? We then are instruments of false conversions. It's happening all over America. A false conversion will happen when you adjust the gospel because you don't want to talk about wrath or sin because it may smell like death. Look at Paul's transition. Because... Why are we a Roman to God? Because we don't do that with the Word of God. We let it be death and we let it be life. That's going to produce some more unrest in our culture, isn't it? I mean, I'm one of those guys that when he gets the, the fragrant bottle out, I mean, I overdo it. I'm an extremist. You walk into that, you start choking. <laughs> Who just unloaded a, a, a bottle of fragrance? Well, that was me. See, people are going to choke on this. Paul says, we are not hucksters. You cease to be an aroma of God if you offer a prosperity gospel. What's the aim? The prosperity. If we adjust the gospel because more people will come if you offer something like prosperity, we are slowly stopping in being an aroma to God, a sweet smell. If you give a gospel to people of feel good, well, that doesn't smell like death to anybody, does it? Just make them feel good. If you give an aroma that says you can have paradise with no repentance, that's not death. That's what I want to hear. Now, beloved, the aim is not to be death. We're, we're not going out here. Let's, I'm going to preach every Sunday and see how much death I can be to people. That, that's not it. We just speak the gospel. And we are an aroma because we know it's going to be the smell of death. It's going to upset people. People are going to love, they're going to be inflamed by it for the glory of God. Let's not be hucksters. There's enough of those in the American Christianity. It's taking that gospel around the planet. Rather, let's be what, Paul? How do you do this, Paul? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, as of God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Sincerity means he's just true with them. Now that again gets back to the accusation. No, I'm just being true. I can be real. Why? Because Christ is the treasure. I don't want to try to make a gain off the gospel, like the hucksters. That's why they peddle it. When Christ is the treasure, you can just be true with people. This, here's the message. 
It is the, it is the, it is the pearl. It's the treasure. If it's not the treasure, then you're going to peddle it. Because we just want a big church. We just want people to be happy. We would like more money to come in the coffers. Well, Christ has not gained them. He just speaks out of sincerity. Secondly, as of God. That means he, His authority is from God. He just speaks on the authority of God, not His own wisdom. Should we change this? Should we adjust this for the sake of the people? Should we make the people? No. We just take the gospel, say it as well as we can, not mean-spirited, not trying to smell like death. We just know it's going to smell like death. He gets His marching orders from God. In the sight of God, He's speaking, which means He's not concerned with the approval of men. He's not concerned that people are going to like Him and approve of Him. He's not concerned at the end of the day if people are going to say, you're a great man, Paul. He wrote a severe letter to prove it. At the end of the day, it's what God, His sight, His view, what He thinks, His approval, His assessment. And that goes in all of life, doesn't it? Young people, whatever people may say about you, criticize you for being a Christian, remember, all that matters is your Savior's assessment. That'll give you courage. That'll give you strength. What He says is all that matters. Now, don't be mean to them. His view is all that matters. And then He says this in closing. In the sight of God, speak we in Christ, in Christ alone. In Christ alone, He speaks. In Christ alone, there's forgiveness, there's strength, there's help, reconciliation, redemption, rescue, deliverance, grace, peace, joy. He speaks in Christ alone. Beloved, how do you see yourselves in this procession? You've been captivated by Christ to be part of His procession all the way to eternal glory. Is it life to you or is it death? Secondly, you are the priesthood. You're holding the censers and you want the savers' knowledge to be diffused through your thanksgiving, your words, and your actions as you love one another. And lastly, you are the aroma itself. You're the incense. It'll be death to some. It'll be life to others. But the point that Paul says is we are unto God a sweet savour. It pleases Him. It may not please anybody else, especially when it's death, but you are a pleasure to God. Because you're speaking out of your need in His glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. Help us to be this way. We know Paul is speaking about his ministry, not only to Corinth, but the churches of that day. And how he had this great unrest. He had many afflictions he will talk about in this letter alone. A list of them, twice. And some of the challenges he faced as a minister. But as he gave thanks, even after he was beaten in Macedonia, in prison at Philippi, he still sang praises to you and gave thanks in his pain. And he was a witness. In that moment, he and Silas gave off and diffused the aroma of Christ to the point that when the jail cells were opened, they remained. They were influenced. And you brought a man to salvation through their witness. Oh Lord, work that way in us. Work in our church in such a way that others would come to the place of conversion and seeing you as the aroma, aroma not of death, that's the way we're born, but the aroma of life unto everlasting life under King Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.